0: Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War podcast, bonus episode three, Uncle Tom's Cabin and the Literary War. In at least one arena of American life, the Civil War began long before the gunplay at Fort Sumter in 1861, and here I don't mean politics. Instead, Americans began firing off rhetorical cannons long before the dawn of physical violence, and the political realm was simply one aspect of the deep cultural shift. As such, it makes sense to look at the literature being produced. And that leads us on a road to one very specific work, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Let's clarify up front that immense oceans of ink got printed for, against, and generally about, slavery and abolition, and even about Uncle Tom's Cabin in particular. So obviously, Uncle Tom's Cabin is hardly unique there's an entire genre of essays, short stories, and even music arguing one side or the other, sometimes implicitly rather than explicitly. However, Cabin, as I will refer to the book, effectively set the standards of public debate. That is a remarkably unique accomplishment for any work of literature in history. Now, for clarification, it outsold any other work apart from the Bible, received local translations across Europe, and sparked its own pro-slavery counter-genre of all bizarre things. And there's a pretty interesting story going on just with the history behind this book, too. As a work, yes, Kappen basically rewrote the definition of success and public impact upon its publication in 1851. But it also happens to be directly connected to the entire world of abolitionist literature. To step back, author Harriet Beecher Stowe was, in modern terms, connected to some of the most elite culture leaders in the Northeast. The Beecher family alone produced a notably large number of influential evangelical preachers. Her father, the famous, and sometimes infamous, Lyman Beecher, welcomed Harriet to the family in 1811, followed by her brother Henry in 1813, and yes, there's a reason I mention him. Now, they were only two of thirteen siblings. That was a large family even in this era. Now, I'm going to skip over any childhood stories and talk about her as a young student when she attended the Lane Debates. Now, these had a powerful impact on her life, as well as the United States as a whole. The debates, so named because they occurred in a series of lectures held at Lane Seminary in 1834, became something of a touchstone for abolitionist sentiment among theologians, at least those specific to what would, in an earlier day, have been called non-conforming churches. Now, nominally, they centered around what to do with free African Americans, especially on the subject of providing a colonial home in Africa for them. Now, even very sympathetic white men and women recognized that the nation remained deeply opposed to integrating former slaves on anything like equality. In the 1830s, that was still an unpopular view even in most of New England. Colonization seemed like a reasonable chance to achieve liberty for the slaves without trying to reach for the end of racism itself. Now, lest we think too harshly of its proponents, remember that legal equality alone took well over a century following the debates. This was not an abstract idea for them. It was a very practical concept. Now, Harriet Beecher's father Lyman, who served as president of the seminary, favored colonization. But he allowed Theodore Dwight Weld to organize the debates, and Weld was a powerful proponent of abolition and equality. Weld's influence here is a bit hard to explain. On paper, he was just a student of the seminary, but he so happened to have been directly involved in scouting the location for it in Cincinnati, purchasing the land, and making all the arrangements for administration and teaching. He was by no means a callow youth. As a result, the Lane Debates featured a gathering of many of the major figures in American abolitionism, and in large part served to crystallize abolitionist ideas and spread them among a generation of young ministers. Now, the American Colonization Society didn't just immediately close up shop, but it did decline in relative importance following the debates. Other voices, such as that belonging to William Lloyd Garrison and his newspaper, The Liberator, were becoming much louder and more prominent. Now, among other significant connections, Weld married Angelina Grimke, who we mentioned previously, and with a number of other abolitionists, he published American Slavery as it is in 1839. This work, though relatively short, contains personal observations and eyewitness accounts of the lives and living conditions of slaves, the behavior of slave owners, and the incomprehensible human misery of it all. Many of the contributors owned slaves either at the time or in the past. Furthermore, the work advanced its argument by including things like reprinted advertisements, like bounties for runaway slaves, or physical descriptions of their mutilations. In short, it condemned slavery, either in the words of those who had or were in the process of moving away from it, or alternatively, in the words of those who eagerly profited by slavery and defended it. Now, this in fact had a profound effect on the genesis of Uncle Tom's Cabin as well, Harriet Beecher found no difficulty in following abolitionism, and her family certainly didn't make this difficult. Henry Ward Beecher, the aforementioned younger brother, became one of the most vigorous abolitionist preachers, and in a few years, he's going to be raising money to send guns and powder to anti slavery settlers in Kansas. And, well, that's merely one small side episode of his activities. In the meantime, Harriet met the distinguished Reverend Calvin Stowe and married him in 1836. Now, today her fame overshadows his, but it's worth noting that he was no mere intellectual lightweight in his own right. He held a string of prestigious university positions, built and maintained libraries, and counted more than a few famous politicians and authors among his social circle. He's also arguably the father of public education for a big slice of the country. Now, regardless, the genesis of what would become Uncle Tom's Cabin goes back to the Compromise of 1850, which, as we've discussed, had already turned into the most destructive political conflict in the history of the Republic. This, naturally, sparked all the essays and newspaper editorials and journalism to start flying, twice as hard as before. Amidst all of this, one of Harriet Beecher Stowe's relatives more or less suggested that, well, Harriet should add her own imagination and views to the public debate over slavery. This she did, working late into the evening despite raising her own family of children. Regardless of circumstances, she did finally finish a serial story called Uncle Tom's Cabin, or Life Among the Lowly, published in the National Era, a pro-abolition periodical. Now there it became almost an overnight success. The public audience demanded more and more, so much so that the narrative and its ambitions expanded accordingly. And that audience cheered again when Stoke collected it into a book format and published it in 1852. Now, to run down the major events and themes of the novel, we should first understand and clarify that it isn't only about the daily practice of slavery as such, which actually occupies a relatively small but uh, rather distinctive portion of the narrative. The entire novel takes place in the context of increased cultural conflict going on between the free and slave states. Fundamental issues of culture and ideology were changing, yes, but more than that, the people of each state were increasingly coming into contact. Friction resulted. Likewise, remember that to us, this is all history, easily picked up from a book. For Stowe and her contemporaries, this was everyday reality, and the ending had not yet been written. The book was written to change America, not to document it. That being said, the events of the novel do more or less reflect the reality of slavery, which Harriet Beecher Stowe took either from the direct experience she had, personal communication with African-Americans, including former slaves, and a great deal of documentation she collected, which more or less shows the factual basis of the story. Much of it actually really happened to someone somewhere. However, Cabin also contrasts the disparate views of different regions or individuals as regard the institution, including three different plantation owners in different cultural milieus, as well as Ohio politicians, Quakers, non-slave-owning Southerners, and so on. In short, there's a lot of subtext in the text, and not all of it was necessarily intended. Now, as regards the novels itself, we should understand that the characters are broadly drawn, in part because the Romantic era of literature didn't need or desire complex characters with deep inner lives. On the contrary, Intermonologues monologues and intricate motives would simply detract from the events and the actions taken by different people. Arguably, there aren't real characters in Cabin at all, because pretty much every one of them is meant to stand in for an idea or culture as much as an individual. Similarly, the books fall into preachy didacticism from time to time, with a particularly Puritan outlook reflecting the beliefs of the author. So without further ado, let's briefly explore the actual events of the book. Now principally, Cabin covers dramatic events in the lives of two slaves, Eliza Harris and Tom, both of Kentucky. Now what makes this rather odd is that the path of the two characters separate almost immediately in the story, and they never meet again. Thus, there are actually two very isolated narratives to discuss. To be blunt, it's not totally clear to me whether this was a deliberate choice by Stowe from the beginning, or if it sort of came about because of the serialized nature of the work. As it happens, however, it creates a point and a counterpoint to explore. First, Eliza, a young slave mother, discovers that she is to be sold from her more or less happy home on the Kentucky plantation of Mr. Shelby, to satisfy the latter's debts realizing what being sold down the river would mean, probable separation from her children and her husband George Harris, she takes what desperate chance she can and escapes the slave trader in the only place possible, carrying her son across the broad, frozen Ohio River somewhere around Cincinnati. Along the way, she receives help from a wide variety of sources. Some deceive the slave trader or keep quiet about what they know. Others actively aid her escape. Nonetheless, it is only because of her extreme haste and courage that she is able to make it across the river at all, literally leaping from ice patch to ice patch. From there, she takes refuge in the home of a senator, who is faced with the awkward unpleasantness of having to experience the results of the very laws he votes for. Nonetheless, he also helps Eliza and her son to safety among the Quakers. She reunites with her husband George Harris, a skilled factory worker, but nonetheless also a slave and who by an improbable coincidence was also going to be sold south at the same time. Unfortunately, they are also hunted down by a slave catcher named Tom Loker and several other men trying to claim a bounty on Eliza. The peace-loving Quakers show their own kind of courage and help the Harris family escape to Canada, while Tom Loker is almost fatally injured. Now, the distinction between Tom Loker and George Harris here bears some examination, Loker is, not surprisingly, white. He's also as rude and uncouth as they come, physical to the point of brutishness, uneducated, and not exactly enamored with the idea of self-improvement. He has, not surprisingly, no sympathy whatsoever with slaves at all. George Harris, on the other hand, represents human capacity as its finest, a loving father who has been in part kept away from his wife and son by slavery, who nevertheless works hard for his ungrateful master. And far from being a brute laborer, George applies himself to learning the trade and understanding all the textile machines he encounters, even coming up with valuable improvements. Naturally, he received neither benefit nor loyalty in this unequal exchange. That said, the story does not present Loker as simply the bad guy. He is in part the product of his environment and culture. Under the gentle care of the good Quakers, he heals and converts to the side of Christian morals. Look, it's that kind of novel, and this is sort of the price of admission. It's basically directly an extension of Harriet Beecher Stowe's avowedly religious view of life and society. Just about every character is, in some way, an extension of the author's conception of virtue and sin. Now, going back to Tom's story, well, his journey also begins on the Shelby Plantation, as mentioned. However, Uncle Tom declines to escape with Eliza, reasoning that it would merely force some other fellow to be sold in his place. But, as long as he stays, the slave trader cannot afford to chase after Eliza. Tom, therefore, sacrifices his life to be taken down along the Mississippi, hoping only that Shelby can repurchase him in the future. The story thus literally places them on different paths. One is able to cross the river, while the other is carried along by it. On his journey south as a slave trader's property, Tom sees the reality of plantation society for other men, but especially the emiserating condition of enslaved women in excruciating detail. This represents the flip side of Eliza's story, where no miraculous escape occurs. Instead, children are stolen away from their mothers to some unknown and likely unpleasant fate. Those despairing mothers might embrace the river rather than live on, and too many white Americans, slave owners or not, persuade themselves at length that it's really all quite proper. It would, after all, be very financially unrewarding to acknowledge that black slaves could feel such wrenching agonies of the soul. Tom, however, does all he can to ease what pain he encounters, even though he knows he is helpless to truly solve the problems of the human heart. However, Fortune smiles on Tom, and he becomes the property of August St. Clair, after saving the life of his little daughter, Ava. The following section of the book doesn't actually have all that much to do with Tom personally, except to show his inconceivable purity of spirit. Instead, it contrasts the virtues and failings of the extended St. Clair family. August St. Clair, although a good man at heart, has essentially given up opposing slavery and falling back into apathy and laziness, even though he left the plantation behind with his hard-hearted brother. The two show, in essence, a split in Southern culture between the active promotion of slavery and the passive acceptance of it. His cousin, on the other hand, the New England-born Ophelia, has a similar background and opinions to Harriet Beecher Stowe. She hates slavery, but also has a difficult time understanding and relating to the African Americans themselves, given the vast cultural and social gap between them. St. Clair's wife Mary, on the other hand, is narcissistic nearly to the point of solopsism, and can't comprehend slaves having any other purpose in life greater than comforting her. In fairness, she extends that courtesy to literally everyone on earth, but she has a terrifying and unearned authority over the slaves, whereas no free white person feels the need to humor her. Now, Tom and Ava, despite their manifest differences, are essentially two kindred souls without a single drop of malice between them, whose hearts overflow with the milk of saintly love and divine mercy. Ava, in particular, isn't so much a person as a plot device, and natural enough she quickly contracts Victorian novel disease. Leaving out the details, the two have an intensely positive impact on most of those around them, inspiring Ophelia and August to become their best selves. However, a dark twist of fate sees Tom sold off by Mary St. Clair into the grasping arms of Simon Legree. Legree, to be blunt, ranks among the vilest villains ever invented in fiction. He is a thematic foil to, well, almost everyone who isn't completely insane. The man demands his slaves adore him as a god and exercises godlike power over them. Of course, you might know that in Christianity, the desire to be like God is not uncommonly thought to be the most diabolic temptation possible. Given absolute power, Liguria is corrupted absolutely. Although it isn't important for the events of the novel, it is important in Stowe's purpose that we understand that Legree is a transplanted northerner. Stowe wanted to communicate that slavery and evil are not just southern preoccupations. They are an outgrowth of the evils of the human heart, Whatever institutions needed to change, people too also had to change. And for how it all turns out in the novel, well, no more spoilers here. Go read it yourself. Now, before moving on, I want to address an elephant in the room. In the nearly two centuries since the book's publication, the phrase Uncle Tom has become a cultural and racial slur. Now, this has very little to do with the book itself but instead to some of the stereotypes carried over from it. These were used and abused in minstrel shows to sneer at African American men, and to present Uncle Tom himself in the slavishly obedient terms common to pro-slavery literature. The disgust of being treated as such caused understandable backlash within the African American community, which continues even today. The problem here is that, if we're being honest, Tom in the book is basically Jesus Christ made incarnate as an African-American who experiences and endures slavery's best and worst, and finds both wanting. Rather than a weak or submissive figure, he is brimming with spiritual strength. Tom is gentle because he is morally superior to everyone he meets. It is the white owners who in one area or another inevitably fail to rise to his level of achievement, which leads to his Christ-like fate and like Christ, He defeats evil and saves others through some form of self-sacrifice. Simon Legree, deeply symbolic of the devil, ends up confounded, confused, and enraged because his attempts to control, dominate, or intimidate Tom utterly fail. Moreover, we should remember that Tom as such was never meant to symbolize African American masculinity. That role actually goes to George Harris. George, who showed himself to be extraordinarily capable, becomes sick and tired of being treated like a beast of burden. So he carries himself off to freedom in an act of self-will, to reunite with his wife and child, and then he shoots the man who dares to drag him back. When denied the right to take pride in himself as a man and an American, he demands that respect by intellectual and physical prowess. Now there are valid criticisms of the novel, leaving aside purely literary or stylistic elements that obviously will not, for every reader, age equally well. It doesn't depict the everyday reality of slavery so much as the very best or worst moments that could possibly occur within the peculiar institution. The portrayal of African Americans is certainly rather flat and mostly static, although again, this is no different than how other characters are shown the sentimentalist Christianity on display might irritate even those readers who broadly agree with Stowe's religion. Now, the worst side of this is perhaps at Stowe, not entirely free of the prejudices of American society, transferred stereotypes onto the written page and perhaps reinforced them. Nonetheless, there's a pretty good reason this novel had the impact it did. Well-written and well-researched, it painfully forces the reader to engage with human misery that the original audience knew existed, perhaps often in very close proximity. Stowe does include racial slurs, which the modern reader should be aware of, but only employs them within the social context where they would be used in the mouths of the people who really would use them. And Stowe arguably exceeds the effort of many later authors by the simple fact of not forgetting enslaved women. On the contrary, Their special struggles are shown as even more heart-wrenching than the plight of enslaved men, and this perhaps became the primary point of attack on slavery itself. Cabin sold 300,000 copies before the Civil War, making it among the best-known anti-slavery arguments. While that didn't mean everyone read it, certainly everyone knew about it. Reportedly, Abraham Lincoln later teased Stowe by saying, "'So you are the little woman who wrote the book that started this great war,' Now this is almost certainly an apocryphal tale, since it was only documented five decades later, but the idea isn't so far-fetched. Cabin did what American slavery as it is could not. It personalized the problem of slavery in a way that everyone could approach. That said, we cannot mathematically judge the impact of the work because, like many other issues, there's no convenient constant flow of 19th century opinion polling to measure. Yet Uncle Tom's Cabin definitely hit a sore spot among the pro-slavery set. They responded with a barrage of anti-Tom literature that claimed slaves were all humble, happy workers who cheerfully labored for their beloved masters, which neither sold so well nor was really believed. Ironically, we know that Uncle Tom's Cabin really did achieve a widespread audience in part because even in the South, well, there were constant efforts to quash it and argue against it the trumpet blasts of pro-slavery ideology, in fact assumed a broad familiarity with the work. Of course, Cabin was only one book. Slave masters could ignore it, and at the end of the day, the electorate north or south had to get up in the morning, put on their shoes, and go work for a living. They had neither the time nor the inclination to stake their identities on slavery, not mostly. However, the ascendancy of President Pierce and the ambitions of Stephen Douglas would combine to show the world exactly why slavery could no longer be allowed to dominate political life, and what the consequences were if it did. So join us next time as we continue down the march to civil war, as violence begins to break out in the territory of Kansas. Today we've talked about a literary war, but another kind of war is going to emerge very, very soon. Thank you for listening to the American Civil War Podcast. And I hope you'll join us next time.